this is a bag of coins. You know, penny for your thoughts kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, in the spirit of such, as I spit on my gum, three feet, nice. One hundred episodes of Mars on Life. Three seasons, one hundred episodes, two panic attacks, uh, God knows how many abandoned projects in its awakening. God, when's the last time I got a hundred on anything? I don't think I even got a hundred on anything in college, let alone seeing that number. Anyway, um, <laughs> Welcome, listeners, to episode 100 of Mars on Life. It has been a treat. It is also the time where I announce my retirement. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but join me, joined with me as always. Cracking up on a nice bottle of Petrus Aged Pale. Aged Pale? Yeah, Aged Pale. Yeah, just... That just already sounds like the most pretentious thing I've ever heard. It it smells yeah. so good. Um, Pe- Brian Petrol? Mancini, of course. Petrol? You, you're drinking, you're Petrus. drinking fuel there? Petrus. Product Pet- of Belgium. Petrol. You're, you're, you're drinking gas. No. Petrus. From here. <laughs> uh, my uh, God. You're, you're 100. Nice, nice rye. <laughs> hey, catcher, get out of that rye. Anyway. <laughs> Ah, delicious. Yes. Can't believe it. 100 episodes. Wow. Oh. Where 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 would you think? Where did you think we would eventually be? Do you, did you think that we would make it past episode 2 or Oh, definitely. Okay. No, I, like, I don't I... want to sit on our soapboxes or anything, but like I remember the other guests that we've had, you know, they've you know, anecdotally they're like, "Oh, you know, most podcasts don't go past two seasons, whatever two seasons equates to, whether that be one episode or or 50 episodes or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt as if that there was sort of like a, not a constraint, but sort of like a barrier. And it just feels so weird that now, officially, we have gone triple digits. Mm-hmm. That That is insane. A lot of people, when they hop into the whole idea of doing a podcast, you know, number one, I don't think they have they don't have the real the immediate realization that it does take a little bit of work. Um, mm-hmm. And on top of that, like a lot of the, a lot of the sorts of things that. You know, and I'm not trying to toot my own educational horn here, but like. But you will. It, 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 well, <laughs> I'll be delicate. Uh, I'll be delicate. I'll be delicate. Like, I'll put it this way. If you haven't been in a situation professionally or maybe you've been out of school for a while and whatever job you may have isn't as taxing to the point where you're essentially putting in 100% or at the very least you're putting in 100% despite an existential crisis, uh, (laughs) you know, you're you're not in a situation where you're trying to function on a level of brain power that requires absolute attention. And and to some degree, that's very similar to some of the stuff I've had to do in working in a newsroom. And right. obviously, this is a lot more fun than that. You know, we're not listening to a police scanner 
uh, we're not making phone calls and needing to write notes down 100% accurately. Like it's it's a lot more free flowing, but it's also passion. Mm-hmm. And I think people just have the expectation that you know I'll just do a podcast and you know I'll make money off of those like five episodes and that's it. Like no, you just need to keep on going. Right. And I just think that you know people also just have changing passions. You know the repetitiveness. Yeah. They lose it. They lose the passion because of the repetition. Honestly, I I like talking to people. I love talking to you. So I, I could never feel myself tired of it ever. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? No, right. Yeah, I. It's it's funny because I was sort of going through all the projects that I've been, I guess, working on, whether that be with uh, YouTube or you know just anything audio related that isn't Mars on Life related and i was thinking to myself i'm like you know what it's probably about time that i trim some of the fat that i really wasn't passionate about you know maybe i would have been passionate about in the beginning Mm -hmm. um but i had like this audio archive and i still technically do have it um and this will kind of serve as the official announcement um for my narrations for my youtube channel and it was a it was an audio archive to sort of uh, coexist with it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't updating it as much as I thought I could back when I initially started it. And I hadn't uploaded an episode since October of last year. And I really decided at like this crossroads, it's like, you know what? Not only is this taking up more space on my computer than I initially thought it would. I'm just really not into putting it in a medium like this. I'd rather just put it on YouTube, you know? Right. And I just sort of lost the passion for it being on two platforms. And now I just kind of only want it on one, which I just get, I guess just goes to show like what you consider your levels of importance are in terms of passion projects. It's not to say that I didn't have fun adapting it into like audio only, but it's like, I'm kind of done with it. (laughs) I'd rather just put it on YouTube where I know the people that that will enjoy it or that that would watch it um, are going to get more kick out of it because Mm -hmm. I think it is more of an engaging platform than than what Anchor provides, despite Anchor being incredibly convenient for what it's given both of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, you know, so. Out with the old in with the new, which. Mm -hmm just sort of been my thing as of late when i think back on what we've done and especially when i look back on you know it's something that that's come up frequently i I think i mentioned it last week about just talking about the the transition that we had to make so early on it didn't i didn't think at the time that it was going to be such a complete change of transitioning over from you and I in a room talking to you and I in separate rooms talking over a great distance, not that great of a distance, uh, 20, right. 20-ish right. miles. Uh, I think the, the transition, easy part, I think, if anything, it was just sort of maintaining, obviously maintaining the quality of the show, maintaining the content. Like, that's a lot of the stuff that, you know, when you just keep pushing and building off of that, 
and I won't say everything we've done has been completely perfect. Right. Um, I, I think a at lot this point, of bugs. We're, we're at a safe point now. We're yeah, at this point, <laughs> we're at a safe distance from the beginning where we can admit that. Um, because well, really, well, really now we're we're at a point where it's just like, well, shoot, we can't be making those kinds of errors. I mean, we're at episode one hundred. You know, like I feel like that there's some some willingness to give a little bit of slack. I guess how you define audience viewership as subjectively, you know, as constructive criticism. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But if you found your if you find yourself struggling in the beginning as a content creator, you know, more specifically as a podcaster, what you'd want to improve, whether that be your speaking patterns or your knowledge that you're putting out there to the public. It's, you know, what have you. I think once you reach a certain milestone, you kind of, you kind of can't make those errors anymore. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, and... I mean not to say that you won't, but, or that we won't, but it's one of those mm-hmm. things where just like, okay. I th- I feel like we have some, some some weight when it comes to the podcasting scene we know what we're doing to a fair amount um we're not trying to make something that would encroach on anything anyone else is doing in terms of copyright law how that's concerned i don't know did i leave any bases did i leave any stones unturned no i think that covers it i mean we you know on top of all of that i think you know, I think the for me, the biggest concern has always just simply been Internet connection. And honestly, we've always. Right. It's been fluid from really from day one. And, yeah, you know, I, we've had very surprising considering the distance that we were at versus the distance that we're at now. So and admittedly, there was an episode early on. and I, I'm already forgetting how well I, I remember how early it was. I couldn't tell you what episode it was, but. Mm-hmm. There was a day we were spo- we were recording uh, Wednesday we were recording and oh god now I have to go way way back to the beginning <laughs> to find it um, and I, I don't want to repeat myself with what I did for episode uh, first episode of this season in terms of like call- making a full callback and presenting viewers with what I said but I might have right. to. May 8, 2020. Episode 14. Amity, as you know, means friendship. Since we're kind of on a similar subject, uh, had my Wi-Fi not totally uh, sepakued itself yesterday, I <laughs> why don't was you go asked... Ahead and read, why don't you go ahead and read the uh, opening paragraph that you sent me out? This was a yeah, uh, I, and a half. <laughs> no, no, I don't think I will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> There was like a an internet outage, and I was in the middle of a Zoom call. Oh yeah, four students in the journalism department at Cal State Northridge, and it was just like everything crapped out. And my sister, myself, and my dad, we were all trying to use everything. And I was under the impression at the time that my neighbor had something to do with it—the neighbor with all the cars—and <laughs> and, and you know, looking back on it. I'm not to- I'm still not totally sure. I still think it, he had done something. Uh, who knows? Did, who knows? But probably try to fire off all of his Porsches at once. Maybe. Honestly, you're probably <laughs> not wrong. Broke um, the Internet. <laughs> yeah. 
but however that's like, possible you know don't don't ask yeah and and that was that day like since then you know our internet the internet connection at my house is, has definitely improved mm-hmm. uh so i can actually like google things and like watch things and apply to jobs and i can actually use the internet for something instead of just be like boy, I hope this video about the new stupid thing Trump says actually loads. Otherwise, I'm just going to go take a shower. Um, Honestly, I wouldn't feel too bad in terms of that. I've had my fair share of internet problems too. When it comes down to something like as basic as streaming, which really isn't that basic of a concept, it's actually kind of complicated. (laughs) You know, I I could stream for like upwards of six, seven hours, upwards Mm. until like five in the morning no hiccups and then i try to do like a 10 minute stream while playing like playstation no sorry Mm -hmm. can't do it you know it's it's one of those things where it's just like thankfully it hasn't hit when we're recording Mm -hmm. it's just it just hits when i guess too much bandwidth is being utilized and it's like okay you look at us we're two people utilizing the audio only function on a decade and a half old application that records audio and video, and we're not even using the video. So, you know, <laughs> the chances of it crapping out on us are slim to none. So I'm yeah. guessing it's the fact that I'm streaming a high intensive video game from the seventies. Yes. Yeah. Pong. I'm trying to stream pong and it just decides, <laughs> eh, you know, can't do that. I'm afraid you can't do that. Seb. The fuck over your game, how <laughs> Obviously, as as time has gone on, we we've, and this is something that I, I don't even need to hint at. It's something we've actually physically done. But looking back, you know, I, there's still a part of me that wishes, and obviously, I'm asking for an entirely different world when I think this. But <laughs> in we? a world without COVID, you know, there's a there is that part of me that thinks, well. There's, you know, if, if parallel universes exist, there's one out there where COVID doesn't happen. And theoretically, this could be like a live show or of some sort, you know. Right, like, right. And and especially, I, I think we would have been more active in terms of physically going to places and re- reporting, more or less. I think um, we've done a pretty decent job in what we've done so far. I mean... You know, Rome wasn't built in the day. And also you have to take into account, like, I think when it comes down to starting something like a podcast, and again, totally subjective opinion here because everyone grows their audience differently. You Mm -hmm. know, when it came down to something like what I did with YouTube, it was just a matter of uploading and the repetition of uploading and not caring about any sort of, I guess, schedule at the time. Yeah. Until ironically, that's exactly what I needed was myself to kick myself in the ass and be like, hey, if you upload every day, that equates to something called retention, Sebastian. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact is is that why we upload weekly factors into that. Mm -hmm. Like if it was a matter of, oh, yeah, one episode every two months. Okay, well, it better be damn good then. Yeah. Uh, and and there's people that do that, and I think, to some extent, I think that contributes to the to. And again, this is my opinion too. Like that may contribute into the lack of 
going past episode whatever it is two three five ten you know is Mm -hmm. when they see that they're only producing 10 episodes a year you know are is and obviously there are successful shows that will do that And, and don't get me wrong there's a lot of there's podcasts i listen to that do that um but hell there's podcasts i listen to where there's the main show and then their hosts and producer will do like side shows, you know, right. that and sometimes those are like exclusive content. Uh, one of them I just got done listening to was Hell of Presidents. <laughs> oh, such a great. Oh, man. Can't phrase it enough. But, <laughs> um, you know, but. And again, like I said, you can have that success if you pump out a few episodes a year. But right. If you're putting in like like say some of these shows, for example, do factor in an immense deal of research and interviewing to the point where you're interviewing people probably a continent away, maybe yeah. on an island in the Caribbean or, you know, like one right. example is the show Blowback. Like that's a pretty limited series that you get a few times a year. But the the level of detail and especially the historical research that goes into it, mm-hmm. that's a lot of work. And I think doing it weekly, and especially when we're doing it weekly, where we are in a time where I think we're, it's safe to say, even despite our differing work schedules slash work or lack thereof, we're we're still consuming a lot of other content and we're still able to bring that to the forefront. Um, speaking of which, I will note very briefly, kind of tying that with the wi-fi issues i still remember vividly and it, I, I always kicked myself for this um right. there was a segment in and this is actually a perfect segue into another aspect i want to cover with such joy in this episode but um <laughs> but uh i still remember editing the Hall episode okay and I was it was towards the end of the the middle portion of the episode where I'm talking about Nightcrawler and he provides this line of dialogue to you know his, his partner intern uh Riz Ahmed's character in the movie and I'm going to see if I can actually pull up the line so I can actually say it uh <laughs> since what happened was what happened was I you know I'm editing the episode and I must have had internet issues that day while we were recording because it was just choppy me me repeating that specific line that he says Mm -hmm. to his quote-unquote intern employee whatever where he says to him uh what if my problem wasn't that i don't understand people but that i don't like them you know if, if we're if we're looking at it with the hindsight of the movie joker as we do that's the that's the moment that's the sort of the the Murray Franklin show moment, except way less violent and no Italians were harmed in the making of the scene. Um, so and it, it's such a it's such a powerful moment just because that's the moment where the character actually unveils the his his sociopathy, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's like looking back, it's, it's such a great movie. Um, but like that was that's a moment. Why. I, uh, <laughs> I, I was kicking myself just because I had to cut that part out of the original episode because of the internet. Yeah. Of the internet. Yeah. So, um, 
Now, I should very I should note very quickly, and, and theoretically, this would have been a question somebody would have submitted. Uh, theoretically, um, would would I ever follow up and and cover the successful successful, the successive, Gyllenhaal and L.A. movies that have since come out, uh, which I think are the Guilty, and I think the new one that just came out or is coming out in theaters called I think it's called like Ambulance. Um, yeah, it's something like that. I've already kind of covered the guilty and ambulance. I'm just going to straight up say no, because number one, and this is really the only reason I have Michael Bay. It's a Michael Bay movie, and I just I, I have no interest in seeing it. So I can't stand Michael Bay. Like, too many, I, too many explosions in my Christian film. <laughs> <laughs> wrong i love the rock i even like the first transformers movie but of course of course you do everyone likes the first transformers movie it's yeah the, it's when they added dinosaurs to the fucking mix that was just like okay what oh it was, some, so it, was, it was long before they added dinosaurs you want to add some you, you want to add some go bots in there too how about that oh the dino bots are are part of the transformers lore yeah, um but, but like, why i just want to see optimus prime kick the shit out of some decepticon <laughs> Or better yet, uh, bring like bring like Ultra Magnus in there. Be like, who's this? Oh, you know, someone other than the red, white, and blue truck that you've seen for yeah. the past eight years. That that would have been cool. You know, and they brought in Rodimus, and instead of having Rodimus be like the freaking next generation hero, he was just this French side character who's like, "Hello, my name is Hot Rude." So yeah, it was just and you're just like, why? Why? The reason why I bring the Gyllenhaal thing up in particular, uh, especially within regards to the whole concept of questions, was uh, I did my best <laughs> to see whether or not people would be at all interested in submitting questions, knowing well in advance that this would be our 100th episode. Uh, let me just kind of reopen Instagram because I, I did this a couple times and suffice it to say, uh, we got one question. Okay. And, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna chuckle when I tell you who it's from. So this was from at Ozo Grande on Instagram. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you who it is after I read the question. <laughs> When did Mancini develop the hairstyling of a Pacoima strip club owner? At Ozo Grande is one of the hosts of a podcast you might have heard of, especially through this show, called Touchdowns and Tangents. At Ozo Grande is, of course, Kenneth Frank James Berry. Um, yeah, I have no answer to this because he also once said that because of my hair, I looked like Don Jr., which I found a little too harsh because Oof. I I look nothing like Don Jr. Um, I have a neck, for one thing. <laughs> I can't grow a beard, though. If you look at my Instagram stories, I do have a, a vague uh, Guy Fox mustache and goatee going. But hey, that's because I have nothing else really going on right about now. So, hey, change it up. I'm like Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. Um, so, 
Yeah, that was the question. That was the one question we got. Um, well, I don't know. Should we make up some questions? <laughs> I'm just still kind of reeling in. Like, it, suffice to say, it never it never fails to amaze me how your closest friends can just sort of. <laughs> Fuck you sideways. Uh, well, I mean, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, I get. I guess in retort, um, when are you gonna start? When are you gonna stop posting tangents and start posting news? Oh, oh! Shots fired. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, make up some questions though. Shoot, let's see. I don't know. I mean, really, I think sort of the whole expectation was that it would be like this 100 100th episode extravaganza, you know, complete with like, you know, bells and whistles and shit. But really, is it too much of a stretch for me to just say that I'm content at the fact that we have even made it this far and internally like raise a glass to the fact that the day is here, you know? Yeah. Looking ahead the sheer fact that i'm not going to be here for a majority of the time because of uh work obligations i didn't expect to be here for the 100th episode at all Mm -hmm. you know and and that was one thing that i was just sort of concerned about other than you know i guess how do i contribute even when i'm far away Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact remains that I'm not far away. Obviously, I'm still here, but it's like doing this show to me is just such a mental break mm-hmm. from ever, uh, from work, from from other projects that I'm working on. Uh, really, I have nothing but gratitude in the people who have listened the platforms that we've managed to host on the fact that in, in doing this podcast, it has led me away from, I guess, a life that I thought was so set in stone with publishing. Mm -hmm. And while I'm very much saddened at the fact that publishing didn't work out for me, I'm actually very glad in the end that it didn't work out for me to pursue something like this. Mm. Um, that's the way I've looked at it so far. Uh, I really don't have any questions, but, but answers as to <laughs> what's ahead, really, you know, as, as cryptic as I can make it, because I don't know what's going to lie ahead, but I'm just glad that we've made it this far together. You know, really, I, I think this should be mm. more of a gratitude episode than anything. <laughs> You know, we can we can say what we've been saying for the past, I guess, now 100 episodes, 99 episodes. You know, we can we can regurgitate what we've been saying this this whole time for the past two plus years. But two, just straight up two, as of as of, you know, why? Why would we when we can just kind of take a moment to be like, oh, shit, we've actually made it. And, yeah. and to be thankful because of that. I think of anything too, just looking ahead, 
and again, and I'm, I'm going to try my best to not re- repeat, even though I'm about to, uh, you know, a lot of this season, I think, will be more experimental than we've ever done before. Um, not only because of the fact that you'll be absent for a small part of it, but I know there will be probably some weeks that I'll have to reschedule when recording happens with guest hosts or guests in general just so an episode is out Mm -hmm. um and on top of that too i think if anything i'm I'm most curious because i think by the fall i mean obviously with my situation and once we get to sort of the the big topic of the episode that is something we talked about while we were working on the trailer for this season you know, whatever my situation is, I certainly don't want it to interfere, nor do I want it to shake things up to the extent where I couldn't do this every every week or, you know, God forbid, I'd have to stop it altogether because I, I don't want to do that. This is 2020. This was my one big success that kept going. And I, I it, for me, you know, for, for you said that for yourself, it was something to sort of wind down and sort of get away from with every get away from everything for me it was very similar but it was a way for me to channel you know my my speaking my whatever research or reading that I do and and channel it into something that I knew could also be a different path for me that didn't have to just be strictly written journalism right um because that's something that even as of today as of the day of recording it's something it's a path for me that you know it may not be a path that i want to continue taking for the rest of my life um you right. know it, it may be wanting to go down a path that's more akin to people i've mentioned before on this show like rick perlstein or mike davis like it's mm-hmm. and, that, and again that's something i won't get too into that's something that's that's a little more personal that I, I don't want to get too much into for this episode. But um, but yeah, you know, it's it certainly given me the opportunity to feel like my old self, especially pre pandemic. And obviously, as times have changed and people have essentially settled with the crisis that we're in, which it never fails. Every time we record, there's a new story on it, which I will get to. <laughs> um it really like we're three for three now where we record and some new covid news in la county hits and i'm just yeah. like, fourth with- fourth vaccine by the way recommended for next fall spoiler alert yeah okay this is news okay i remember when i first saw that at work um because we're allowed we're on computers and, you know, typically we find yeah, extra time and that's all I'm going to say. But sometimes headlines pop up and it recommended, oh, fourth vaccine may be recommended for next fall. And I'm just like, oh, great. <laughs> OK, it's all, I, it's all speculation, you know. OK, at this point, medicine speculates itself the way I speculate silver prices. But I heard from a, a health expert on one of the more. One of the less conspiratorial uh, cable networks uh, essentially talking about how, to some degree, the booster may have been may may have been unnecessary, which I don't know if I believe that simply because if 
our level of being vaccinated was to wane over time and getting a booster was just an extra safety precaution, especially in the face of Omicron. Right. You know what? I'm fine with that. I, at this point, I, I think. I mean, Omicron um, definitely sucked. <laughs> Speaking yeah. from experience, but <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was crappy. Let's face it. The big situation at hand is despite a lot of the shifts and changes going on with the pandemic, which of course we've talked about before, we're going to briefly talk about it again, uh, again, briefly is just because I don't, just because like, I don't get me wrong. I, I <laughs> love bringing up the COVID news on this show. I love bringing it up, dude. Honestly, I, I do too, because every single topic, I mean, we get to episode three, 97 more episodes yeah yeah we're in a pandemic we're still in a pandemic you know uh two two plus years into into two weeks into flattening the curve guys you know i i've heard the jokes you know they're funny yeah they stop i've heard them from you i've heard the jokes from you yeah there you go (laughs) it's all coming together um but yeah you know it's one of those it's almost like a slice of life show where it's like how many slices of this fucking pie can we still have it be when we're in the pandemic? Realistically, the real season two would have capped off being like, shoot, we're out of the pandemic. Now yep. what are we going to talk about? You know? So you could say like the repetition of Mars on Life is there because for the past 97 episodes, that's that's what we've been in. And we've attributed every single topic to the pandemic in some degree shape or form so it's mm-hmm. like okay well i guess if i want to point it back in the in the inquisitor's face of oh well, why don't you talk about something else what else is there is my question of yeah. course it's a lot but how are you just going to ignore the uh the <laughs> i guess the elephant in the room yeah I'm no not exactly to, not to be so doomer but it's like it's interesting to follow up on. It's it, it's funny to follow up on in the stupidity of others. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. what's a satirist, a satirist. But I'm having a ball. You know, I, I'm thankful for the pandemic in many ways, mainly hobby related and and you know individual project related. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I don't know, I. I, I feel like I owe the pandemic a debt of gratitude in, I guess, awakening a new creative edge or a creative outlet or whatever that wouldn't have been there had I not been locked in my house. Mm-hmm. I think and I think I've mentioned this before where I'm not so much one trying to be like, oh, I hope we stay inside forever. No, of course not. You know, but mm-hmm. one of those things where it's just like. You can't take the time that has been given to you for granted. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad that we haven't. So. And and I think I, I have to agree with you in a lot of ways living through this and especially, you know, I, I again, without getting too personal, I had one existential crisis before COVID hit, like a, a good year before COVID hit. And getting to live through this certainly for one thing it washed away that first 
moment of crisis for me simply because it, it just it totally dwarfed it and just paled in comparison. Mm-hmm. Also, like I kind of to some extent recovered and, and no, I'm not a recovering alcoholic or drug user. It, something I never knew. It's, uh, you know, it, it was something entirely different, which, again, was completely washed away by at least February. Like by February 2020, I was pretty much 100 percent myself again. And then going through a year of feeling like just feeling like somebody that went through the worst case of perpetual burnout, but also the feeling of like, just thinking to myself, I feel like I'm bloody Anakin Skywalker on a table waiting to get the suit on. Right. Because I feel, you know, and I think I've said this before, like the, the feeling of the, the cutoff feeling of not getting to go out see people go to places I love like a lot of that it really felt constricting and it really felt very um asphyxiating and so right you know as time has gone on and especially as I've kind of let go of a lot of things and you know I've changed my mind on a lot of things mm-hmm. I've changed my mind on people that I've read from I've changed my mind just on so much and I think a lot of that does stem from the moment of crisis we continue to be in. And for all I know, it, it's it's still contributing. But then the question becomes, OK, when do you realize that you've overcome your own crisis, which more or less I have? Then what becomes the next step? And I think for me, that's what I'm wondering what exactly I need to do or what I should do, because I and even just outside of or rather Tying it back to the show for a second, like I know that by by the time you get back, by the time I get back, yes, listeners, I may be gone for a while. Ooh, don't Ooh. worry, I'll have I'll have episodes up my sleeve. Um, but cool. <laughs> you know, I, malignant, watch out. Um, but um, you know, I think my biggest hope would simply be for us to do more episodes, kind of like what we did for the Autry. Right. Because in a lot of ways, that was that's a perfect example. And and even what we did at the Geffen Contemporary, those are things that 100 percent identify with the kinds of stuff I was imagining for us since the day I said, hey, let's do a podcast. Right. Um, right. No. Yeah. And, and, and those were probably some of our best ideas in the moment because of the commentary that we got. Yes. You know, like you're not going to. Absolutely. You know, you can show me contemporary art and i'll be like oh well, that's stupid <laughs> you know be, i mean you know me i'm not gonna say it verbatim like that but i'm gonna have some choice words and it's gonna be in the air of uh humor but it was one of those things where it's just like man i really wish we were in a museum looking at the art itself making in-person real-time judgments of sardonic character mm-hmm and we did. And yeah. that's like some of the best moments that I think the show has ever had is the fact that like COVID allowed us to do that with the loosening of certain restrictions of mm-hmm. the fact that we can go out now, you know, which was once, I guess, impossible to do so because everything was shut down. 
Yeah. But, you know, it's those moments where it's just like, okay, this is where <laughs> this is where we get to shine even mm-hmm. brighter because, hey, we were expected <clears throat> to be in, indoors for all of these episodes. And surprise, dear viewers, we're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, no, that that's the way I look at it, at least. No, I mean, those those are two of the most rewarding episodes we had done just because, again, we, we, were, we were finally doing what we set out to do. And obviously, I think there's more ways that we can certainly expand on that. And, and again, it's ways that I want to definitely pursue in the future. Obviously, some of that I know is going to take more work. Um, I'm fine with that, frankly. Uh, but I also just think, too, that with everything being as uncertain as it is with the pandemic, and obviously this goes back to a lot of the restrictions being loosened. This goes back to the fact that you've had such a variety of not strains, but just Omicron itself (laughs) presented so many possibilities for people to contract the virus in ways that were unique, very specific to Omicron. Right. Um, you know, there there was a good L.A. Times op-ed. I, I won't get too into it because that's not the COVID story I want to share. But mm-hmm. um, it essentially addressed the fact that um, let me just quickly open it just so I can get it right. Uh, what the, the author of the op-ed had to say, uh, Eric J. Topal, um, Eric said that you can just look at the more than 50 new mutations present in Omicron to know there are seemingly infinite ways for it to further mutate and rearrange the 30,000 base pairs in its genome. And and then he follows up very quickly with, there's a misconception that the virus is destined to evolve to a more benign form. If we've learned anything from the pandemic, it's that the virus has an extraordinary ability to adapt, and it is unpredictable. And obviously that in of itself is very much the contingent on what we're able to do and also just the contingent on the rest of society moving forward as a whole. And which is, you know, kind of a weird way to sort of use the macro and micro of what's affected by COVID general society and a little podcast from two guys in SoCal. But it really is like, you know, we're, we're living in a moment that, I, I have to agree with a lot of people that have said this. This is essentially our World War II moment. You know, <laughs> like as 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 ridiculous as it may sound, as a war with, as a war is is quickly approaching around the corner. Might I add? Well, oh, that, oh, how prescient! And and believe me, it, that that in and of itself, I could dedicate a good half hour to. I won't though. But yeah. I will say, <laughs> I will say though that well, actually, I'll, I'll briefly say this. I do think that that in of itself is a moment of that is that is a hinge point away from the crisis at hand. It is a distraction. Mm-hmm. You know, what what's a better way of not focusing on the material conditions that are slowly crushing and alienating and atomizing our society between rising child poverty uh, horrible economic conditions, i.e. inflation, and a virus that is still killing 
almost a 9-11 amount of people every day. Uh, Oh, there's a war somewhere. Someone might invade somewhere. I mean... Like that, I, it's 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 amazing that that's even being that's on the table, or, that, or that's even a news story right now. Right. So, and and obviously, you know, I I doubt anybody would say this, but I I could easily hear someone say, "Oh, but Ryan, what about World War One going on during the Spanish flu?" Ah! Well, it was a much different <laughs> well, world. Well, well, you didn't have two guys in SoCal there to document it via podcast, now did you? Exactly. Um, <laughs> But also, in terms of just where we were in the field of health and medicine, completely different world. You know, I mean, and, and yes, World War One did exacerbate the Spanish flu in such a way that was wholly unnecessary. But at the same time, you know, that was supposed to be the war to end all wars, as was said at that time. And clearly, we had, you know, like most franchises that say this is the final chapter, there have been a lot more sequels since then. So, uh, so, so how are you dodging the draft then? I guess is my next question. Oh, man, that's, a, that's actually a really good question. <laughs> uh, well, I know I'll be in Mexico at some point in April. So, oh, there you go. Um, yeah. yeah, you'll be fine. I, I should be. I mean, I, I, it's... Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, where the hell was I going with all this? Uh, anyway, like uh, again, war, famine, poverty, uh, anything that you'd hear in a fallout intro, <laughs> you know, a war never changes. Ah. Well, I, I, I'll put it this way. I think all of all of what we have or all that could be this show post july 1st i'll just put i'll just put a flag down on july 1st since by then you'll be back uh end of july oh end of july end of july yeah don't 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 worry you'll know when i'm back i'm just gonna put it out there yeah (laughs) okay you'll know when i've returned that's interesting okay because i had june i think you said june 22nd originally oh god wait hold on is it june um march april may because I have oh, Seb's oh, back. Oh no, no, June, June. I'm, I'm an idiot. Yeah, I'll, okay, I'll be back. Okay. I'll be back before the fourth. Yeah, fourth of July. Okay, okay. So then, so hopefully, potentially, episode one seventeen. Yes, I have it all down. Potentially, that'll be when you're back. Otherwise, it'll be July first. That's fine. Uh, yeah. Either way, I'll, I'll, I'll make it work. Uh, I, I think that. It'll be it'll be interesting to see how we can go forward in terms of, again, the kinds of stuff we did with the Geffen, with the Autry. Um, obviously, it doesn't always need to be like a museum or an art thing. I mean, we live in Los Angeles. There's a ton of things to do. There's a ton of history worth checking out. Um, right. You know, I know. I, I mean, I, but but if you think about it, OK, say <laughs> we don't go to a museum, we're still going to have our snappy comments. Oh, of course. So really, it doesn't matter. <laughs> where we go so much as we still maintain that level of commentary so Mm -hmm. you know you could put me in a you could put me in a park and i'll tell you that the swings don't go as high as they used to (laughs) you know so exactly so now given that i've i've kind of skirted around it as long as i have i'll just get right into it so this is the news story on covid as of today 
Okay. It goes like this. This is a headline from NBC4. Starting so NB- Friday. So NBC, so NBC 1 through 3 were taken? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Read the story. Honestly, probably. Anyway, starting Friday, so the day that you're listening to this, listeners, no masks are required indoors for fully vaccinated people in Los Angeles County. The change will go into effect Friday for establishments that verify vaccination status, L.A. County health officials said. Uh, they confirmed that its masking rules will be relaxed beginning Friday, sorry, said, uh, allowing vaccinated people to shed face coverings indoors as, excuse me, at establishments that verify vaccination status. Meanwhile, the county is reporting another 36 COVID deaths and 1,934 more cases. Friday. Well, happy yes. birthday to me. Shit. <laughs> Look at that. We're already loosening up, even though literally everywhere else in California has already loosened up. Mm-hmm. So I guess we're almost there. Well, it lays open the big gaping maw of a black hole slash question mark. Which is the fact that you still have a lot of children that are unvaccinated. Right. And they're being essentially forced to go back to school. And they have been essentially since the year, the since 2022 started. Mm-hmm. And I think that in a really horribly twisted way is what will continue our trajectory of, ooh, well, cases are dropping, deaths are dropping, let's reopen, let's, not, not so much reopen, I mean, that's just it, the whole concept of reopening Well, is well let's, of, you know, let, let's put let's it in politi- well, let's, um, let's put it in politician speak. Let's quote, return to normal. Why don't we? Exactly. You know, and let's, let's not open the floodgates, even though that's essentially what they're doing. Exactly. Let's return to normal. Yeah. They're fine. They play in the dirt. They drink from a they drink from a water hose. It has it has ninety five percent lead in it. Failing to understand and come to grips with reality that that's what we did. Okay. Mm-hmm. We already have the immune system. They don't. Moreover, <laughs> to the fact that kids are being raised in the home as opposed to playing outside because risk of infection, so they don't have time to grow that immune system. Mm-hmm. So. You know, like, and I, I could already see the chain reaction here, but go on. And and this is unrelated to the story, but it's related to the whole covid situation. Apparently. Due to the number of people that were essentially infected by Omicron, in terms of how many people have some level of immunity, Despite the fact that we're, I want to say, somewhere around 64, approaching 65% fully vaccinated in terms of the American population against COVID, Mm -hmm. we're looking at a potential immune level in terms of how many people have some degree of immunity against COVID at 73%. Okay, so we're at C status. Not bad. (laughs) Which basically puts us in a situation where we're, and this is where it gets into a lot of arguments among people, which frankly, I don't even know where to, which side to agree with more other than we should be more safe than sorry, which is 73%. That basically means we're right up to herd immunity, right? Now, right. 
Right, right, right. The problem with that is, number one, a lot of the people that have had Omicron, or rather just the people that have had COVID in general who aren't vaccinated, there is no, you know, you have morons like Rand Paul say, oh, they got a 99%, 99.99% immunity, which is a totally fabricated number. On top of that, you don't know how many of those people, what they're, again, you don't know what their level of immunity is. So, yes, 73% of the public may be of varying degrees immune to COVID. Number one, that still doesn't mean the virus is going to go away. Number two, that doesn't mean the virus is going to go into a benign form like the common cold, which theoretically could still happen. And number three, it does not mean that we're in a situation where we can just say, okay, so 75% roughly Let's go back to let's party like it's March 12th, 2020. Just to kind of read a little bit on from the story uh, from Barbara Ferrer, uh, the L.A. County uh, director of public health. Ferrer said the indoor mask rule would remain in place until the county's level of covid transmission falls to the moderate level as defined by the CDC and remains there for two weeks or COVID vaccines have been available to residents under age five for at least eight weeks and no emerging COVID variants of concern have been identified that could spark another surge in cases. And that is literally the end of the story. Wow. Okay. We're, we're, we're kind of now at the edge of the, dare I say, event horizon of whatever our future may be in terms of defining the latter months of spring, early months of summer and essentially, potentially, uh, predicting how the rest of the year could be in terms of are we going to be back in a situation like we were these last couple months come, I don't know, May or June. Again, as, as much as I think a lot of the handling of COVID, especially in our country, has been one giant disaster, there people are still able to manage. People are still able to move on with their lives and, and do things, especially if they're healthy, especially if they're vaccinated and boosted. Hell, a shout out to a, a mutual friend of ours who just got married and uh, a bunch of other mutual friends of ours were with him. Oh, no shit. He finally found someone for him. How mm-hmm. sweet. Wow. Well, this goes to show every, uh, what is it? Every rose finds its thorn? No, that's not it. Every rose has its thorn. Every rose has its thorn. Excuse oh, me. I don't know how endearing that is. Well, he is, well, I mean, he's a bit of a knucklehead. That's why, uh, you know, <laughs> he was called Steve-O. Again, there, there's there's varying degrees. Life can be managed, but it, I think I think for me, too, like, and this was something that really factored in with other trips that I had prior to our visit to uh, uh, to the Autry and to the Geffen is just sort of the, there, there is, at least for me, I do get a, a certain degree of anxiety when I go out and about. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously being aware of wearing a mask and, you know, kind of feeling, you know, that feeling of, bristling up when somebody gets a little too close or they cough just a little bit or they have a child who has a cough that sounds like they just got out of a back to tank from star wars like it's (laughs) there's times where it it gets a little yeah isn't that the worst 
hacking up a lung and shit. It's just like, Jesus. And again, you don't know how old the, the kid is. You don't know if they're vaccinated. You just know that there's a lot of news out there about. Right. Right. You know, the vaccination status of children is essentially. Eh. And. We'll get to it when we get to it. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a worrying thing. And again, you you read news about like there's Republican state legislatures out there that are like, we don't want our kids to not only have to not only have to not have to take the covid vaccine. We want them to not take any vaccine once they're out of the womb. Mm. And you're just like, whoa, wait a minute. God, when did this vaccines cause autism movement pop off? It's the dumbest shit I think I've ever heard. I mean, it really escalated during the Bush years. Like, okay, and we were already a pretty anti-science country by then, well, but that, that was, was where that, it, like, I mean, that was pretty, uh, that was that was low-hanging fruit. What I'd a- what I ask. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's face it, the, the big scientific discussion of that time outside of uh show me evidence of chemical weapons was stem cell research. Mm. And yet a lot of people in, in working in the sciences, my mom included, who were like, this here's is complete. Here's the research. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, they were like, this is idiocy. Like there's already enough data out there to prove the benefits. There, th- There's nothing overlapping with any kind of religious belief that's going to either change our minds or change the data that we already have accrued. Right. And when you have a a puppet of an evangelical president with as much sway as he had, like George W. Bush, yeah, of course uh, we're going to totally cut the knees out or cut the legs out from under us in terms of stem cell research. So, um, and you know, it was just a steady slope in terms of like, how much more can we take out of funding for things that are going to be important? Like, I don't know, a stockpile that could prepare us for a global pandemic. Yeah, uh, you know. Right, Barack? Um, stuff. We could go in circles forever about it. Like, if things improve, which who really knows, uh, we'll be in a, a much better situation in terms of what we can do with the show. I mean, we'll still be doing sardonic commentary regardless of what we're doing so i hope, I hope so i mean oh. shit the, the day i stop is the day the podcast ends so oh, god <laughs> <laughs> now i should note as this episode is going to premiere uh not only is it going to be approximate to when the show launched two years ago it's also a birthday on the day this episode drops uh Care to explain, buddy? So I'm one year off from my quarter life crisis on Friday. Um, 24. Uh, I think it was a SpongeBob joke in there somewhere. Oh, yeah, it's like 24. <laughs> yeah. OK, we all grew up in the same household. I get it. So while I'm at work slaving over a pittance pay, I get a little birdie tells me that there is a, a present. On my doorstep from I would say yours truly, but it would essentially be my truly, which is you. I, I hate second person. Okay. I, I don't even know how, how it even works in literature. But perfect segue because I'm holding this and I'm thinking two things. It's a perfect box shape. 
and it's hollow. So I'm thinking, while I can't necessarily hear the Lego pieces shaking in here, <laughs> um, it's going to be good. Oh, my God. Paper. How do you feel that you killed trees, Mancini? Hey, man, you know, I've, I've been to Brazil. I've, I've seen parts of the Amazon. No, I'm, just, I'm not going to Dude, look at that. Catch-22 and the Rum Diary. Hunter S. Thompson and Joseph Heller. I thought that said Joseph Hitler for a second. My uh, <laughs> dyslexic brain is firing on all four cylinders right now. Oh, my God. Dude, thank you so, so much. You bet. Now I, I still need to finish up letters to a contrarian, to a young contrarian. Excuse me. Oh, my but God. Oh, just wow. Add it to my pile. Matter of fact, I have letters to a young contrarian. I picked up the zombie survival guide because it was free and you would too. And on bullshit by Harry G. Frankfurt sporting a hardcover again. Mm. I've got some reading material ahead of me, my friend. Oh yeah. But thank now, you should... so, so much. Hell yeah. No, I, to some degree, I, I, it was a combination of thinking back to our previous discussions, and it was also thinking back to, uh, and, and I'm not trying to throw her, no, it's not throwing her under the bus. I as, sort of... As you throw her under the bus. <laughs> I, I, I sort of applied um, friend of the show, Shawnee Badger's thinking, where for, I think it was for both birthday and Christmas, since my birthday is close to Christmas, but either way it works. Uh, she went with two books that she really loves. Mm -hmm. And so, and one, one of which was uh, a collection, a complete collection of the works of Edgar Allan Poe, um, which I still need to get through because it's, it's a, it's a, it's a weighty, weighty read. Um, and yes, right. it does include one of my favorite short stories ever, the cask of Amontillado. Um, and the other one was of her favorite play uh, called All My Sons by Arthur Miller, who you and listeners may recall is the guy who basically wrote The Crucible. Yep. And and I have read that. I have read, well, I own The Crucible. I have read All My Sons, and it was really, really good. Although, bloody introduction, they straight up spoil the end of the book. And I'm like... Eh, I mean, we knew in the Crucible that girls were going to burn at the stake. You know, what, what are we going to do here? Oh, no, that, here's the thing. With the Which, ironically, they didn't, but <laughs> I guess that was a zinger. But with No, this, this was with All My Sons, where they basically give away what happens to the lead character, who is essentially racked with guilt for something that he thinks he did. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, and, and and it's such a gut punch, but like again, it would have been a bigger gut punch had the introduction not been like the reason for his suicide. Um, oh, so, so it's sort of like it's sort of like uh, it's like one of those crime dramas where you see how the murder happened and the rest of the show is piecing together like why the murder happened, when it happened, like they're finally not kind not of not really. It's it's more. Uh, to, to the short short and sweet of it is there is a a man who develops parts for planes during World War II 
and his son is flying in one of those planes and his plane crashes due to a malfunction. Mm. And he's racked with guilt over the possibility that he may have inadvertently killed his own son. And it gets even worse when his neighbor and friend and colleague gets all the blame for these parts leading to the deaths of a bunch of men who were flying these planes. So not only did he kill his son, but his friend is in jail serving time for time that he should be serving. Oh, wow. And it gets even more twisted because his son's daughter, or excuse me, his friend's daughter was engaged to his son. And chaos eventually ensues. Um, it, it it was really good, very entertaining. Again, I, I highly recommend anybody go check it out. It's a quick read, too. It's, I want to say, like 80, 90 pages. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I use the same logic with those two books. You know, I... Catch-22, I'll admit, it took me a brief, a brief, brief while for me to finally catch the satire, but Mm -hmm. it's totally up your alley. Once, once the satire, the satirical elements of the book start to sort of click, it's totally up your alley. It's totally up my alley. Um, And what's cool with your copy, and this was something that blew me away when I found it. Okay. Most well, number one, it's yours. Is you've got a, a I think like a fiftieth anniversary edition. Yeah, yeah, I've got the fiftieth one. So, what's interesting with your copy is that all the colors are like not inverted, but some of them are. Like most copies of Catch Twenty Two, it's a blue cover. It's basically the exact same design as the cover you have, except it's a blue cover and the. American bomber on the side who's kind of looks like he's in motion uh, is red. Oh. Whereas with yours, it's the total inverse. Interesting. Because the copy I have, it, I think my copy's from like 20 years ago. Okay. And it it looks retro. Like it has the, the blue cover and the red bomber guy on, on it. Whereas right. with yours, like I said, it, I, and again, I've seen other 50th anniversary copies. I've never seen one like that one before. Um, and on top of that, there's some writings in there from a couple Christophers whose works I've sent to you in the past, uh, who, by the way, both those Christophers, of course, knew each other. Um, one of them wrote, one of them wrote an obituary for the other. So, uh, and the rum diary, I mean, it's, it's Hunter S. Thompson's one and only novel. It was his attempt at a great American novel and it's a novel but it's not that great or it's it's great it's just not honestly much of a novel i think or it's novel me... and it's great that, that, that one that okay. one <laughs> um that one i i loved a thousand times more because i'll just finish that sentence first that one i loved a thousand <laughs> times more than the great american novel he was trying to uh equate it to when he was working on it back in the 50s which was the great gadsby which was his favorite book uh-huh. and is probably my least favorite book you really um, don't like great gatsby do you i i get the messaging of it and i think 
See, I just like the memes of it where it's that one face that it's like looking at the book and it's like trying to comprehend it. It's like, oh, you know, the American dream has its all has its faults and everything. It like goes right over the person's head. And like the direct message that it gets from that book is women shouldn't drive, period. (laughs) And that's when I laugh because I'm just like, okay, this this is my humor. Oh my god! Was was the fucking gabagoo? I found it. <laughs> it's you know, I I I respect what it's trying to do, and I think within the times that it came out, it made a lot of sense. But I don't know. I, there, there's also an element to it where I'm very jaded by Fitzgerald because he wrote a short story that I had to analyze the shit out of in my freshman year of high school. Oh, so you're kind of jaded of off of called, Scott. Yeah, and, and I think okay. it was called, like, Winter Winter's Tale or Winter Bones. And it, in a lot of ways, it was, it was Gadsby, but, like, 20 pages. And there was an element to it that just felt very pathetic. Right. Okay. And well, Thompson... Yeah. Like Thompson, he goes into detail. There's a great collection of there's two volumes of letters that he wrote to people that people can go out and get. The first one called The Proud Highway goes into great, great, great detail. Holy shit. Amazing detail talking about his development of the Rum Diary and his admiration for F. Scott Fitzgerald. He would write page to page, line by line, on a typewriter. Uh, the Great Gatsby. Wow. Not only to get sort of the cadences of the storytelling, but just the cadences of Fitzgerald's writing. And he wanted to sort of honor that with the Rum Diary, but he just couldn't, He, you know, in an ironic kind of way, the Rum Diary was his equivalent of a lot of young people's podcast. Where <laughs> he was so passionate in the beginning, and as time went on, he was like, oh, you know, I got to go do news in Rio de Janeiro and then I got to go to other places in South America. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> and it wasn't until like the nineties when Johnny Depp found it in the middle of all of his papers. And he was like, Oh, Hey, I think you should do a story. You should do a movie on this or maybe you should publish it first. And Hunter Thompson was like, you're right. You fucking bastard. And so it finally came out. And you know, I don't think it got the same praise and reviews. And especially by that point in his career, he kind of became the caricature that people recognize him for. Uh Um, So by that time, I think people were very taken aback by how kind of reserved it is. Right. And I think that is because so much of it is from him in the fifties as a young man in his twenties. It's not like fear Um, and loathing where he just gets batshit crazy. Exactly. And yeah. and honestly, that's part of the reason why I have difficulty with his first book, Hell's Angels, because it's I mean, number one, I can read about it elsewhere and essentially get the exact same point of it, i.e. his letters. But also it's not it's so outside of his wheelhouse that I'm like, I get how this could land him on the map. Mm hmm. But it doesn't have the grasp of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or uh, my other favorite book of his, 
Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. So huh. it's but with the Rum Diary and plus with the Rum Diary, like when I was younger and when I read it, I think that was the first book of his I read. Um, I, I there was an element of it that I related to. And ironically, this was before I was taking like trips to South America and shenanigans that have that ensued from there like it, it, it there was something relatable to it and as the older i've gotten the more i've kind of related to it but it, i mean it's it's a simple read it's a fun read i think you'll enjoy it and with catch 22 i mean it's one of the greatest novels of the 20th century i'll just come out and say it um i i think you, you got some good reading ahead of you buddy i i it came from you. I know I do. <laughs> so I'll put it that way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so uh, it's certainly I'll put it this way. It's certainly you're not you're it's not you're not like me looking at the dense ass pile that I've got in front of me. Uh, I'm, I'm approaching I'm approaching it, you know, with my coins and, and my other miscellaneous hobbies meeting mm-hmm. uh, included. It's one of those things where it's just like. I will get there. I'm slowly turning into the uh, the little fraternity brother that could. <laughs> <laughs> slowly but surely. Oh yeah. I guess we should dive right into the big topic. We're an hour and a half in when we still haven't dived into the big topic. Jesus. Well, at this point, we're 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 a little over a hundred and. 100 geez an hour 20 hour 15 ish so uh and again this is something that i don't know how much we want to go into i think it depends on how passionate we are because i know we're both passionate about it we've kind of expressed our passions for it but something that you and i have talked about as of late and in a lot of ways this had to do this has to do with activities i'm up to which is essentially figuring out my continuation of my career path uh-huh. and sort of where the future takes me. Um, right. Talked a little bit about the subject of the great resignation, which I'm sure at this point listeners know all about. If they don't, uh, essentially 47 million Americans quit their jobs last year. Yeah. And a lot of it had to do with simply the fact that they realized that they were in a terrible job situation and they realized, you know, I can do better. And I'm not necessarily sure how it took a pandemic for them to realize it. I'm not sure if it was the fact that, hey, this job sucks working remotely as opposed to it sucking working in an office setting. Um, if it's a matter of them finding out what they really want to do, like Godspeed. But if it's one thing, but if it's another thing to be like, eh, I'd rather just not do this job because it's a pandemic and I'd rather just not be working then I feel like that's, that, that's another argument, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I, ironically, I found myself more what I wanted to do or finding rather like discovering what I wanted to do. Um, in the pandemic, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's something that I'm, thankful for you know like i you know it came with a bit of trial and error discovering what i wanted to do 
And the irony of it being that I had to give up something that I thought was going to be my bread and butter throughout the rest of my life, you know, like, mm-hmm. I, I guess it just affects people differently. I, I think I had the opposite reaction where it's like now all I want to do is what I'm passionate about career wise, which is my new thing, not not publishing, you know, God, no. If anything, living through COVID, for a lot of people, not you know, obviously I'll I'll jump it back back and forth from us to everyone else. You know, mm-hmm. it's a lot of people learned what their limitations were, and I, you know, some of it also has to do, and and I'm not going to try and go down this long path of, you know, the I mean. A lot of it is very tied in with sort of the history of America's working class and what does that even mean, working class? America's middle class, I should say, and just how that spread out to so many people working low-wage jobs and Mm -hmm. the fact that the support structure just is not there. And a lot of that has to do with policies that were made in the 1970s, a lot of, you know, right. In recent years, I know mil- a lot of uh, a lot of employers have spent millions. I want to say the statistic as of 2019, the statistic was like that employers have spent somewhere around like 30, no, 340 million dollars trying to bust any kind of union organizing that their workers are doing. Right. Um, and that's collectively, ironically. Um <laughs> And also just simply the fact that, again, conditions have not improved with, uh, you know, the theory that, you know, well, if we just pull back on some of this New Deal crap from 40 years ago, we'll we'll have nice, we'll have nice good old uh, trickle down economics and everyone's going to feel so much better about themselves in 40 years time. And, you know, it, it I don't feel I don't feel good about myself now. I think that's more yeah. of a mental thing, but, you know, finance-wise, <laughs> it doesn't help. I mean, yeah, yeah, it, it's, and, and in a lot of ways, it's it's the, the atomization and, you know, I'm kind of not jumping to the gun, not jumping the gun, but I'm kind of simplifying a lot of what I've seen and read in terms of the right. state of labor in America and where we're at in a situation where so many people are quitting Although to some degree you have folks that are saying, uh, oh God, where was it? Uh, this one headline that I saw multiple times uh, from Business Insider, forget the great resignation. Gen Z is driving a great reshuffle as they quit their crappy jobs in hopes of a better career. Great reshuffle. Well, I guess, yeah. I guess, na- I guess now we can't, uh, say the old, the uh, age old adage, oh, you just weren't dealt a good hand because now we can just reshuffle. Meaning, well, it, if you're if you're caught in a uh, precarious situation where you can't pull yourself up by those good old bootstraps, well, now you can just shuffle the deck of cards. So now you really can't blame external factors, right? Not necessarily. Um, well, that's just simply because. Well, you're wrong, Ryan. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Simply because... Uh, my, my cat just walked in. What's up, dude? Uh-oh. 
Hold on. No, he's fine. Okay. Anyway, um, go on. Yeah, the you know when it comes to the whole idea of a great reshuffle, it's more to do with the fact that folks that identify as Gen Z or basically people of that generation are doing what I'm looking at as a millennial, which is the idea of basically just job transitioning. It's it's putting themselves in a situation where rather than, you know, because a lot of the people that think, oh, the great resignation, that means all these people are quitting their jobs and it's a threat to capitalism. Ugh. And I think to some degree, that's very a very narrow way of looking at it simply because number one, well, it's it's really the the biggest point, which is, is this is being done essentially on an individual basis. Right. This is not a collective effort. This is not, you know, there's no threat to businesses by all. I mean, yes, there is a threat to businesses in terms of some of these jobs might have to close, especially if a bunch of their employees quit. Typically, those employees probably aren't organized in any way. So to some degree, there's a little bit there may be a little bit less stress. Whereas if a union turned around and said, you need to improve these situations, otherwise we're either going to. I mean, they're likely going to go on strike before they quit. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not a threat if you have a bunch of people that are quitting because they want to go from, you know, working as a teacher to working as a making a real stretch, a defense contractor or something um, or right. rather vice versa. <laughs> um, or realistically, if, if it's somebody that's like, I've been working in a Chick-fil-A for the last several years and COVID has really shown how horrible my specific working conditions are, I'm going to go to, you know, work for a nonprofit or something. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of read a little bit from, and I'm not going to exclusively fault, uh, regurgitate what's in Jacobin, but this one really good Jacobin article by Alex Press uh, another labor, labor journalist I highly recommend people follow. Uh, her Instagram is also pretty funny, I got to admit. Uh, <laughs> U.S. workers are still quitting Shit. their jobs. <laughs> U.S. workers are still quitting their jobs in record numbers. A record number of workers in the United States quit their jobs in November, another sign that worker leverage in the labor market is stronger today than it has been in years. But without organizing, today's gains for workers will vanish as soon as COVID-era labor market tightness slackens um you said gains and all i could think about was the stock market gains bro you know well and that's that really <laughs> like, is like like, like the this, logic zoom, here. this zoomer speak this zoomer speak is really like wringing me out to dry here because like i can't even keep up anymore like i'm serious <laughs> no i i hear you like i'm i'm in the, i'm of the same mindset of like there's so much of this where i'm just thinking this is disastrous in such a way that it's just not productive. Like speaking in those terms, it's not productive for anybody. Right. Um, and and I should note total total minor digression. Uh, breaking news as of right now. Uh, going back to World War Three talk from Associated Press. President Vladimir Putin says Russia will conduct a military operation in eastern Ukraine. Uh, anyway, anyway, um, so to I just kind of go a little bit into the story, uh, this is a couple paragraphs in, but the great resignation can be interpreted in several ways. There is little, 
La. It's the the sour fodor beer that's like turning my mouth into uh it's that feeling you get when you have peanut butter in your mouth. The great resignation can be interpreted in several ways. There is literal resignation from one's job, and then there is the pessimistic read, a valence of giving up, of not fighting to make things better. This is the tragedy of the disorganization of the U.S. working class, that when conditions aligned to back collective action, there is no collective with which to fight, no organization, no support. Instead, one is left with individual action, leaving one job for another. Uh, switching is winning real gains for some workers who are navigating the job market and coming out of it with higher wages or better working conditions. And this is this kind of has echoes of the whole great reshuffle thing. Though, given how many switchers are surely ending up at Amazon, which I know Alex has a little bit of expertise on Amazon and how it is with its employees, uh, it's safe to say that some people are seeing higher wages and decidedly worse working conditions. But it does not mean that those gains are locked in. When the market loosens up, when conditions change, there is little stopping an employer from taking away what they have, granted, not to mention firing those deemed too expensive or troublesome. You know, again, I, I go back to the fact that a lot of this stems from a lot of people quitting. Uh, the way that CNBC called it, all of this is uncharted territory, which... Let's face it, in our lifetimes, have we seen anything like this? If we exclude, like, people vol- people being forced out of a job due to a recession or a pandemic? I can't think of a time when it's happened. Yeah. See, back, back in my day, people just died in the street. <laughs> you know that Black Death that wiped out one-third of the population? Yeah, no, I just... I... If it's a matter of switching careers, and again, I, I, I hate to sort of shine a light on myself. You know, I'm not the perfect individual that I guess has has a grasp on job security or job placement or really job efficacy, i.e. if you happen to like the position that you're in. I'm thankful in the fact that I found something that I didn't even think I would like. And ended up liking it. I think it could have went a lot worse in terms of, oh hey, finance. Oh, this is boring. Okay, now mm-hmm. one. You know, and what I was doing before previously, working on machines. God help me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can safely say that by comparison, I I never want to go back and do that. You know, it was not what I initially studied for, but. I think sort of understanding that this position in finance mm-hmm. also isn't something that I initially studied for, but feel a greater sense of pride doing and enjoyment in doing. I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, I'm willing to now sort of understand like the ebbs and flows of life and where it can take you and the uncertainty of it all you know i'm uh you know i gotta be honest the whole like serendipitous aspect of it all i i never necessarily really believed it up until where you sort of fit in you know mm-hmm. what i mean like like it, it can happen because i really do believe that it happened for me 
I'm at my own crossroads and I think back to a lot of the things that put me in a rough spot in 2019 prior to COVID and think, well, do I want to go back to that? And, you know, do I want to go back to that and have that feeling of, oh, well, I'm making gains and, you know, I'm, I'm boosting myself in a way that is frankly, not that much different from how I was three years ago, or do I want to be in something that's not only more secure, but I'm channeling things that I'm passionate about. And again, this kind of goes back to what I said earlier. I've been on a bit of a president's spree as of late. Uh, Like, do I want to channel that into something where I'm potentially doing work with an institution that, you know, say it's history of some sort, Mm -hmm. you know, right. Or, you know, some kind of research, like it's, it's, it's something that as time goes on could be a viability, but then again, so could public relations, which I know I've had friends, including people who've been on our show say, Oh man, CD, you'd be good for it. Um, so, (laughs) well, yeah, no, but that, but that is all up to, you being in that position, you giving it a shot, and then finding that conclusion out for yourself. Exactly. So, exactly. you know, as as much as I definitely do appreciate the recommendations that people have given for me in the past, I, I mean, that's one thing, you know, like a judge of character, because how are you going to judge yourself without looking to showboaty? But it's another thing when you're in the field, you experience it firsthand, either like it or you don't and then you make the decision the conscious effort to uh to continue with it you know on top of that i mean especially when it goes to the whole generation you can't really even call it a gap especially between the two of us um right you know like going back to that business insider story it says here gen z's job transitions have increased by 80 percent during Okay, it says during that time. So essentially that would mean year over year. Yeah. Um, Millennials are transitioning jobs at the second highest rate, up by 50%. Mm. uh, With Gen X following at 31%, boomers are trailing behind up by just 5%. Uh, Something tells me a boomer that I know might be in that category in the not-too-distant future, although I'm also thinking to myself, what, what, what other job are you going to get? You know, anyway, that's, that's a different <laughs> tangent. Cause I, that's anyway, I'll get to that on at another time, but, um, right. You know, cause that kind of dovetails back to something we had talked about, uh, when we were developing our trailer. And again, it was totally unrelated to the trailer, which was the fact that between our, our gener- our respective generations, the level of responsibility that, we have in terms of the jobs that we apply for, i.e. the qualifications that we need to have very tremendously. And the elephant in the room, to borrow your phrase on the very subject that was the elephant in the room, uh, the elephant in the room in terms of why there's such a difference there, I think, is COVID. Mm -hmm. Because you do have a a lot of young people, you know, like yourself, like my sister, of your generation that graduated in the middle of all this madness and, you know, 
you got to you got to get job experience, you know. Oh, but how am I going to do that when everyone's stuck at home, you know? And to some degree, that's kind of loosened up a lot of things that, frankly, and this isn't me at all trying to sound jaded or or a little bit miffed, because I'm thinking because there is that small part of me thinking, boy, where were y'all? Uh, where were y'all when I was looking for work back in uh, 2017? <laughs> right, right, right. Of, of like the years of experience and the requirements that some of these jobs have, and especially when it comes to like education and, you know, our jobs now, especially if they're more of a, you know, they're, they're less of a, uh, they're less of a retail job and they're more of a, I don't want to say it's more of a, a PMC type of job, but to some degree it kind of is, you know, professional managerial class kind of job where like you're you're not working in retail you're you're kind of in this above ground position where you're working in like a behind the scenes you know theoretically you could throw a newspaper into the mix for that Uh theoretically right um you know it's it's kind of again it's that wondering of like well wait a minute if what you're telling me is that all that experience that I was supposed to have had back three years ago, I don't necessarily need to have had if I was applying for it now. Well, then where does that leave me? You know what I mean? Like it's it's putting it, it's essentially it's giving an opportunity for one generation. But people of another generation are thinking, well, wait a minute. Can I have a little bit of that? Can I can I dip my chip? You know? Yeah, you, you really, you really throw, you really throw the baby out with the bathwater when you, um, you know, when a company, and maybe, maybe that's why companies are trying to take more of a stab for being like, oh, all inclusive, uh, entry level positions, you know, like, like they have to specify that it's entry level, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm no, bo- I'm no boomer by any stretch of the imagination in terms of age or outlook on the world. That's probably a lie. But, you know, back then, I'm sure positions weren't labeled as entry level. It was just a matter of, hey, do you have a pulse? Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. so there's definitely been a shift in how marketing wise these jobs are being these job positions are being filled. While while I could have the jaded look outlook of, you know, oh, well somebody gets out of college and they didn't have all these internships and yet they landed the job I wanted after I had my internship and got my degree. Well, hell, why, why can't that be me? Like at the same time, I cannot help, but especially in my case, I cannot help but look back and think, well, it's a very different world now than it was five years ago. I mean, the other the other twisted irony is the fact that well, in a twisted sense, that's a good thing. But in the even twistier sense, if it's not benefiting the generation that is the majority, then it's kind of messed up. I'll, I'll put it this way: there were millennials that quit uh, that quit that graduated spring two thousand eight, and then right. what happened that fall? So, in in a, in a horrible way. You know, you have a lot of people and, and I, you know, I can't say that because I, you know, I was in junior high when the Great Recession hit. But you do have a lot of people of my generation who feel like, OK, I've had two recessions and a pandemic. 
yeah, this sucks. But how many how how many more times can I say that this sucks? Yeah. And and but then on top of that, you're like, well, wait a minute. The generation after me might be more prosperous, at least on the outset. Like, that's just it. Gen Z, a lot of the job stuff about Gen Z has been all over the place since a since I've been paying attention to it. And B, at least since just before COVID, because I vividly remember in 2019 reading articles saying, you know, millennials have been straight up fucked by, you know, the by the Great Recession and nothing has helped them in the interim. Gen Z is going to have it a hell of a lot worse. Yeah. Fast forward three year, three years, one recession and a pandemic later. And. It's almost like, you know, hell's frozen over and the sky has fallen because it's not necessarily proving to be the case. And again, from my my opinion, my subjective opinion, I think some of that does have to do with the fact that businesses have had to do some level of review on hiring young people just out of college, given the fact that they've been totally screwed by you know, a crisis the likes of which we haven't had since 1945. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's which on that again, on that front, it's understandable. But then I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. What about all the people of my generation that, you know, got their degrees, had multiple internships, got, you know, struggled to get the jobs, potentially never got the jobs like. Does that mean that the me generation goes from being the me generation to the lost generation, there's the whole labor of love myth where, you know, if you love what you do, even yeah. if you're getting paid terribly, you'll never it's work gonna... a day in your life. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a lot of millennials have had to sort of review whether or not they want to continue what they're doing. And especially in light of COVID. And, you know, I, I've, recommended this probably a thousand times i'm going to rec recommend it uh 100 1001 time more uh she's a great labor journalist she wrote a whole book about it sarah jaffe uh her book was work won't love you back and she goes into great detail especially talking to young people who love their work you know and these are people that are working computer jobs they're working as babysitters they're working in retail um not all of them are young people i should know but you know she talks in great detail about sort of where they were at prior to covid and where covid leads them leaves them in terms of what they can do next and of course a lot of this reporting was done in 2020 so unfortunately <clears throat> it very much predates any great resignation stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she does go into detail about, you know, a lot of the shifts going on in the 1970s and 1980s in terms of work. And it's a beautiful book, too, just because it, it really captures the fact that such a concept like love and how it got so twisted into what people want to do for a living you know, like, like, yeah, you've had people in the past that have been like, you know, I love my job, but I think we live in a unique time where when people say they love their job, it's a part of their identity. 
Right. Well, more so the identity it, it's factored into uh, salary. And especially exactly. Now, and especially now when you're amidst a global pandemic where every red cent counts, mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily blame that mentality so to speak so much as i empathize with the fact that now we have to do this you know like now we have to start counting our i think for a lot of people counting our pennies so to speak and (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know i just you know in finance I, i go through a lot of checks daily and Lately, there's been, you know, sort of an influx of, uh, what is it, tax returns nowadays? Mm-hmm. And people live off of this stuff, you know, and it's, it's sad. It's a, it's not, it's not a hefty amount by any means. I think, like, the general average is, like, 1500 bucks for, like, a tax return. And that's supposed to last someone, you know, a month, a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And in California especially... Yeah, you, you know my gripes about California and how expensive. Oh it yeah, is, among other factors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, good luck having that last you. Just to read a little bit from Sarah Jaffe, um, people have long considered the question of whether work should be enjoyable. In the 1800s, socialist and artisan William Morris wrote of the three hopes that might make work worth doing: hope of rest, hope of product, hope of pleasure, and the work itself. Morris acknowledged that the idea of pleasurable work might seem strange to most of his readers, but argued that the inequality that capitalism had wrought meant that some who did not work lived off the labor of others who were condemned by this system to, quote, useless toil. Modern industry has taken away what little independence and power craftspeople might have had and reduced them to interchangeable robotic wage laborers. No one cared whether the proletariat liked its work, it wasn't given a choice in the matter. Um, and, you know, she, again, she does go on to sort of talk about how maybe there should be some level of liberation of just not having that obsessive passion with your work and realizing, wait a minute, maybe I need to recapture what the point of loving something is mm-hmm. and and realize that, I may love what I'm doing as a craft, as a profession, but it's not sustaining me. In fact, it's putting me in a worse situation so that when a pandemic arrives, I'm as good as screwed. Um, which, you know, I, well, I kind well, of say. Right. Well, be, well, it's one of those, it's one of those instances that you look at and you think to yourself, why do I do this? As much as I love to do something and as much as I would probably agree to not get paid as much because I love to do something, isn't there also something that you can do that doesn't make you money that still brings you fulfillment, i.e. just a standalone hobby? Right. You know, I've been counting coins for the past two hours of recording. Okay, I don't know if you can necessarily hear me, but that brings me fulfillment in the fact that I can just simply collect them in my own space and totally zone out and talk with you and be like, I wouldn't want it any other way because I've been so obsessed for these past 24 years. Mm -hmm. Well, not 24 years, but 
eight-ish years, nine-ish years of doing art for the sole purpose of, you know, really making money off of it. And that's, Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to sound like rude and like, you know, say this in a means of like screwing people over, but it was run like a business. And in that, I saw a lot of just ugly sides that would just rather, I'd rather leave that life behind. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to believe that I have to a fair amount. Sometimes it kind of creeps back up on me and hence the panic attacks ensue. But it's one of those things where it's just like, I don't care if I ever did that again. Like, like really, I I really, I'm willing to just abandon it all because how much happier I am now. Yeah, I get all of that. And I also understand sort of, some, being somebody who's in a situation where the labor that I've done hasn't always reflected in the pay that I get, especially if I work well over time, um, but also just in part because of the fact that I know I'm somebody living within a society. Uh-huh, we live in a society uh-huh. that... Uh, is not only dedicated to everybody's atomization, but also just, you know, the the borderline Brave New World world of, you know, everybody's basically living off of that next, you know, endorphin kick, which admittedly is something that I've I've fallen victim to in the past. And I know that, you know, there's a way where I can manufacture that into something potentially productive. Mm-hmm. Um, to some degree, you know, obviously it, it's, it's not easy, but to some degree, there's a way anybody can make that work. Um, but to go on a little bit with what Sarah has to say, um, work has not brought us liberation, freedom, or even much joy. There are occasional pleasures to be had on the job. Certainly as a writer, I take pride in a well-turned sentence. And as a reporter, I thrill to a good interview. Even as a restaurant server, I enjoyed the occasional chat with a regular customer. I'm not arguing that we should strive to be miserable at work. Quite the contrary, we should take any opportunity for happiness, pleasure, and connection that we get. I do believe, however, that our desire for happiness at work is one that has been constructed for us, and the world that constructed that desire is falling apart around us. Key. As it does so, we suddenly have space to think about a different world and what we might want once it is here, which I, I I stress on that those last two sentences simply because that's exactly what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. Case in point, World War Three. <laughs> but uh, but but like seriously, like that's you know, especially if, if it's people of our generations going through a great reshuffle, then it's not a complete different a completely different world right because it's not like you know again this kind of goes back to what i said earlier about like well you know unions aren't rising up to turn to 2022 into 1934 but at the same time you know some things are changing minutely in response to what is going on so therefore that's enough for some people to think well maybe i want to do that instead right um so, 
and again, the co-opting of like the idea that we, you know, we need to love what we do. I mean, and especially when it comes to something like what we do for the sake of work, for the sake of labor, like it's something that I've thought about in terms of journalism. And this was something we talked about before as well. Like what happens when the passion for the craft totally simmers away and you're left in a situation where you were thinking to yourself one day, this is something I thought, you know, I want to do for the rest of my life. Exactly. Yeah. Like screw retirement. I want to do this until the day I drop. It's a much different world than it was in 2011 when people could say things like that. Um, so I'll just go on a little bit as well. I, again, it, what I'm reading off of this, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're basically getting a taste of what she has to offer in this. A lot of what she has to say is mainly reporting. Um, so, you know, people that want to learn about how other people have sort of lived their lives especially leading up to COVID and how they responded. If you're tired of listening to how we transitioned from in-person to Skype, basically this is the equivalent of that, except not two dudes of the podcast. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but a side effect of all this love for work has been that talking about love between people has lost its importance. To talk of love is to risk being seen as unserious, particularly if you are a woman. Uh, instead, our personal relationships are to be squeezed in around the edges, fitted into busy schedules, or sacrificed entirely to the demands of the workplace. Working class women in particular are choosing to remain single even to raise children, finding that men's job market problems make them poor bets for long-term partners. That this is a horrible calculation to have to make seems not to bother the powerful. And too many people still assume that interpersonal relationships only matter if they are heterosexual couplings, leaving out a vast spectrum of ways that people form caring relationships. Uh, the shreds of the neoliberal work ethic have turned our hearts into appointment books. I can relate to that one. The rhetoric of the factory <laughs> cultural critic Laura Kipnis wrote in her polemic against love has become, quote, the default language of love. Love, for the working class in particular, is a complicated affair. It's not just romantic relationships that have suffered under neoliberalism. Friendship, too, is a casualty of the way our working lives are organized. A 2014 study found that one in 10 people in the United Kingdom did not have a close friend. In a 2019 poll in the United States, one in five of the millennials surveyed reported being friendless. These studies reflected, a reporter noted, a long-term rising, excuse me, long-term rising trends in loneliness, which, let's face it, that's 2019. A year later, there's a pandemic. Yeah. That's that's terribly recipe, exacerbated. Recipe for disaster. Uh, the extended lockdown period... Oh, there we go. The extended lockdown period of the coronavirus pandemic only exacerbated, like she read our minds, uh, from two years ago. Uh, exacerbated feelings of isolation that so many already had. We might have Facebook friends, but do we have real ones? People have tried to blame the internet for our collective loneliness, but in fact, it comes alongside the change in our working lives, the decline of unions and other institutions that gave people a sense of shared purpose and direction beyond just job. When I asked the union activists at the Rexnord plant what they'd miss when it closed down, they all mentioned their friends in the union, not the work itself, which, of course, little personal anecdote there. 
uh, when I was driving over to your place today to drop off your gift, uh, I actually drove by a spot in Burbank where I attended my first union meeting. Wow. Uh, How'd that feel? And it, it hit, man. It hit. You know, and I, I've mentioned mentioned before I've had a studio job, and this was that union studio job. That meeting, despite the fact that it was, you know, in a lot of ways probably just another Tuesday for a lot of the people in the meeting, it, it was something that I felt a lot of meaning being there and being a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I would have continued to have valued had I continued that job, had COVID not happened. But... You know, and and it's hard for me, too, just because, like, maybe some of it just has to do with my views on things. And I look at unions as a huge positive. Um, You know, I've mentioned my great uncle, who was a part of IATSE. This was not an IATSE meeting, by the way, but he was part of that union uh, back in the day when he worked in Hollywood. So it's 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 in the blood, shall we say? Mm -hmm. Um. But yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it, it kind of goes back to the fact that we're in this predicament. Everybody, oh, uh, another AP breaking news update. President Biden denounces, quote, unprovoked and unjustified attack on Ukraine and pledges world will, quote, hold Russia accountable, Jack. Uh I, I made up the Jack part because sometimes Biden would say Jack or Mac. Um, well, <clears throat> shit. Looks like. Yeah. Uh, well, get your uh, get your uh, Barrett 50 cows. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to war. Going to war, guys. Oh, God. OK, well, before before we go to war, I'll, I'll, I'll read a little bit more and then we'll we'll kind of wrap things up a little bit. Um. Freeing love from work, then, is key to the struggle to remake the world. And people are already reclaiming spaces to experiment with what it means to love one another without the demands of capitalist work patterns. As Silvia Federici said, recalling Plato, if only you could have an army of lovers, that army would be invincible. Love, she argued, is a power that takes us beyond ourselves. It's the great anti-individuality. It's the great communizer. Read into that what you will. Uh, that's me speaking. Capitalism must control our affections, our sexuality, our bodies in order to keep us separated from one another. The greatest trick it has been able to pull is to convince us that work is our greatest love. Uh, and I could read, this is on the very last page of the book. I could read the very last segment of it. I'll just read the very last sentence because to kind of wrap it up, to mm-hmm. finish this, uh, presumably Valentine's Day 2020 um which is really kind of amazing uh just because again timing and all what i believe and want you to believe too is that love is too big and beautiful and grand and messy and human a thing to be wasted on a temporary fact of life like work i guess from all of that what what's your do you have a take or do you have a do you have a take or a tangent as would be said on another podcast uh (laughs) With regards to uh, Daffy and what she has to say with some of that, I know that was kind of a rough sketch of some of what. Well, I mean, to 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 quote you in that very same breath of that very same tangent of that very same podcast. No, 
I knew I knew it. I knew you were going to say that. You know, because I don't see myself thankfully being in that position that admittedly I once was back then, where the whole labor of love argument would be um would then be delegated into the whole, oh, well, it gives me fulfillment, therefore I should continue doing this, while not even bothering to take into account how that'd be affecting those held close around me. And mm. I was a fucking toolbox back then, because <laughs> as much as I would self-quote myself as being an empath, I did mm. not take into consideration the levels of hurt that I was afflicting on people, because... Admittedly, yeah, they they knew what was best for me, and I was so and I was way too stubborn to even admit that. Okay, mm. in the eight seven eight years of publishing, a life that full disclosure, I have been doing my damnedest to leave behind because of the repercussions of it. It still pops up, and mm-hmm. I see panic attacks in. Being reminded of not only a life that I thought was so dead set on myself achieving and then realizing that it just couldn't be achieved, but mm-hmm. the artistic movement as of late of art really not being as subjective and not being as uh, as artistic friendly as I once as I once uh, anticipated it being Um the the threat of copyright looms over me like a fucking double barrel looms over Kurt Cobain's mouth. So the way I look at it, I'd rather just not be involved. I would rather not play. I would rather not engage in something that I grew up to now understand as being very predatorial in terms of mm-hmm. artistic processes, how running a business around these artistic processes operates. I would rather do something more constructive, more practical, and more grown up with my time. And while that does sound admittedly very snooty and the fact that, oh, well, you traded art for finance, you're, you're just one of the regular droves of, you know, the capitalist enterprises or what fucking 1984 quote you want to spew out at me one day. Who cares? I like finance. Mm-hmm. You can hear me dump this bag of coins you know mainly because i just like the hobby but that's all it is a hobby it's one of those things where because i have a job that i am passionate in i don't feel bad about spending it on a hobby that is not going to make me money but because i now find fulfillment in doing so because of the sole fact that i don't have to worry about it making money Mm. which was my greatest mistake for all of eight years okay it's like i said before i'm very thankful that the pandemic has given me closure has given me time to i guess repent has given me time to understand and i don't need to be a a fucking stone cold capitalist to believe in the fact that like yeah, your job is not your identity. Mm. I would go even so far as to say that if you happen to make it your identity, that it's pretty that's pretty self-conscious of you. I used to think that way too, you know? Yeah, being the big man on campus as the guy who 
illustrated and published his own book at grade 10 was admittedly one of the biggest bragging rights that I had. Mm -hmm. But it took me eight years to understand that really not a lot of people were listening. And they didn't have a reason to. Right. It was a high school campus. And I don't talk to any of those people anymore. So, you know, yeah, maybe in the moment, if your job happens to be this be all end all identity breaker or former for you. Give it time. I think you'll be surprised in how a the world changes around you and b how you change around the world. So I don't know. I'm sorry. Any, any, any closing I, comments? I, I heard that, and and not gonna lie, that that very end, all all I heard, and I'm not. Don't get me wrong. Everything that you just had to say, I'm in total agreement because I I do think that we are. I mean, we are we are in a weird. A weird situation where we do need to evaluate everything in our lives and think to ourselves okay what can we do to make it better and let's face it like in my situation i'm i'm trying to figure out how much i want to give away to people uh i'm in a situation where i'm i'm, I'm on my own basically um that's not to say whether or not i'm employed or unemployed i that's simply me saying I'm in a position where I can't say I'm in a position where I can, quote unquote, collectively organize based on my work. I can, however, be part of the great reshuffle, Mm -hmm. which is certainly not necessarily something that I want to say I'm entirely proud of. But at the same time, it does intrigue me with the with the notion of. I know what else I'm capable of, and I know I can put myself in better shoes than I've previously been. Um, And that's not out of any form of bragging rights. That's more to do with just my mentality, you know, and and not feeling, putting myself in a situation where I don't feel like I'm still weighed down by what was essentially two year, two full ass years of burnout, um, both working as well as one that was contributed largely by just feeling so so socially cut off and living through global catastrophe but the reason why i chuckled just then uh when you finished was because there there was an element of the line from i believe it was rocky four where uh where sly says if you could change and i could change Everybody can change. Um, <laughs> so there was a part of me that thought that, although again, everything you said clocked it, and everything you said certainly it, it resonates for sure. Like it, it's, I, believe mm-hmm. me, I feel I feel it in my bones, and it's part of a lot of decision making I'm in the middle of as we speak. So before before we totally get off the air, I will just say. Uh, just because there's a little there's a little bit extra to one of those notifications that I read. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin on Thursday announced a military operation in Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. Warned other countries that any attempt to interfere with the Russian action would lead to, quote, consequences that have never been seen. He said the attack was... N- I'll re- repeat that. 
Cohen said a fucking war, guys. He said the attack was needed to protect civilians in eastern Ukraine. Oh, I'm claimed, sure. Which, you know, that's what we said uh, shortly after we went to Iraq, right? Um, yeah. Uh, what's the expression I'm looking for? This was the other doozy. As Putin spoke, big explosions were heard in Kiev, Kharkiv, oh, and other areas of Ukraine. This world sucks. <laughs> I want to refund. I guess, I guess, I, guess uh, I need to revise what I said earlier about um, what I was talking about in regards to millennials and how they've had two recessions and a pandemic later. Uh, yeah. In, ter- in relation to this podcast... A recession, a pandemic, and a world war later. Or no. Damn it, I messed it up. 100 episodes. Wait a second. No. Okay, I got it. You sure? I'm sure. A pandemic, (laughs) a recession, 100 episodes, and a world war later. Nice. There we go. So with that, listeners, the Mars Centennial. Yes, I thought that would be the title of this episode. Love it. (laughs) I don't know. We'll see. Now you can uh, stop bugging me about title ideas. You just found it. <laughs> no, I love it. Really do. 100 episodes. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, and, buddy. Uh, Next stop, the moon. No, we passed that. <laughs> well, theoretically, and this, this is the perfect dad joke to end of the episode, uh, or rather the perfect Ryan joke, I guess. Uh, dad joke, Ryan joke. What's the difference? Uh should we have a Dalmatian on as our guest for the next episode? Because I know I know a Dalmatian for episode 101. I fucking hate you. <laughs> I hate you so much. His name is Deuce. He's got the loveliest eyes. <laughs> Just cut it. Cut it! <laughs> You've been listening to Mars on Life. Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life Show and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Urbrick while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. Once again, I am Ryan Mancini, and my co-host, as always, is Sebastian Shug. If you keep going, you'll make it to Mars. <laughs> <laughs>